Matthew chapter 13. We want to read several passages from Scripture this morning. So let's concentrate on the word of the Lord as we read it. And we're starting in Matthew chapter 13. I'll read a couple of verses, then my brother will read another, will follow that chunk. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Other fe- others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they, did, they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no roots, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on, this, on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. 十三章第一节到第八节 飞鸟来吃尽了, 结石,有一百倍的,有六十倍的,有三十倍的,有耳可听的,就应当听。And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they, nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes 
and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Shizan 正应了以赛亚的预言说你们听是要听见却不明白看是要看见却不晓得我实在告诉你们从前有许多先知和艺人要看你所看的却没有看见要听你们所听的却没有听见所以你们当听这撒种的比喻凡听见天国道理不明白的那恶者就来把所撒的在他心里的夺了去这就是撒撒在路旁的
Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves on. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And then in Mark chapter 4, we want to read only one verse from the same, the parallel passage of the parable of the sword. And that is verse 13, Mark 4:13. And he, that's the Lord Jesus, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable, referring to the parable of the sword? Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? And then in Revelation, the last book in the Bible, I want to read one very familiar verse, chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3.20 These are words from our reason, Lord. Behold, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. And finally, we want to read two verses from a book in the Old Testament, the songs of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. So, we Song of Songs, chapter 1. We want to read verse 4, only the first half of verse 4. Draw me after you, and let us run together. In another translation, draw me after you, and we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. And verse 12 of the same chapter. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege of worshiping you, worshiping you before your table. And now, Lord, we have read your word. We thank you for such privilege. And our prayer, Lord, is in the same lines of what we just sang. Lord, would you just open our eyes that we might can see. Open our ears that we can hear. We want to hear the voice of our King this morning. And we, com- and we confess that apart from that ministry of your Holy Spirit, we will never see anything of you. 
So we pray, Lord, placing this time under the authority of our Lord and King, the Lord Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be in charge of this time and enable the speaking, the translating, and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would be glorified in your precious name. Amen. Well, as you probably know, the, the passage that we read, the, the first passage, is known as the parable of the sower. And since kind of early this year, this passage has been in my heart. I've been considering and meditating on it in connection with the theme that we have here on Sundays. And I trust that you know that our theme has been on God's kingdom. Sorry, more specifically, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. So I'd like this morning very simply to share some meditations on this parable of the sower in connection with that theme. So as you know as well, this parable of the sower is the first parable in Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew 13 as a whole is a very unique chapter in the Bible. We find there a group of seven, some people would say eight, parables. And in these parables, our Lord, our Lord Jesus unveils the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Actually, you, uh, most of you may remember that two months ago, roughly, we had a wonderful conference here. Uh, and our brother Stephen Kong was here. And he shared a whole message on chapter 13. Well, my burden for this time is to concentrate on just one parable in chapter 13. We will touch occasionally the other parables just as they connect to our main parable, which is the parable of the sword. And the first thing I want to just draw your attention to is that chapter 13 begins with that very explicit connection with the preceding chapter. So the opening verse in chapter 13 says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And of course that day is referring to the events that happened in chapter 12. As a matter of fact, chapter 12 and 13, they should be read as a unit. That background in chapter 12 is absolutely essential for us to appreciate 
what chapter 13 is telling. And of course, chapter 12 is such a full chapter. We don't want to go in details through it. But, but we just need to remember a couple of things in order to appreciate chapter 13 and the parable of the sower more specifically. As we read in the beginning, in chapter 12 is the first time in the Gospels that we read that there were explicit plans to kill the Lord Jesus. We certainly see opposition to the Lord way earlier than chapter 12. But in chapter 12 you have the opposition becoming very, very intense. For the first time we see that there are plans to kill the Lord Jesus. And probably you remember, we didn't read it, but I hope you remember that in chapter 13, the Lord performs a very special, unique sign. A dumb and blind man is brought to him, which is possessed by an evil spirit. And our Lord Jesus, He casts out the demon. He opens the eye of that blind man. Well, without going into details, but we need to keep in mind that in, in the Old Testament, there are many, many miracles. But never in the Old Testament, never, ever, anyone opened the eyes of a blind man. And in the in the book of Isaiah, more specifically, there is a very specific prophecy that when Messiah would come, he would open the eyes of the blind. So here is our Lord Jesus healing a blind man before all the crowd, all the multitude. In this context of very strong opposition. And unfortunately, the religious leaders of that day, somehow, they chose not to ignore that sign. As a matter of fact, what they do is much worse than just ignoring the sign. They said that our Lord Jesus was casting that demon by the power of Beelzebub. And Beelzebub, we know that it's nobody else than the prince of demons. So think about that just for a second. 
Here is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Messiah. The one full of the Holy Spirit. And he's performing a sign that should be seen with that link in the Old Testament pointing. This is the Messiah. But somehow those leaders, they have decided in their hearts that they would not have. It's not that the evidence is not strong enough. Is that there is a willful blindness going on in their hearts. And you know that when you continue to read that chapter, even the family of the Lord Jesus, they go to speak to him. Those are the last verses in chapter 12. And in, in Matthew, maybe you you don't get the picture with the same clarity that you get it in Mark, for instance. In the Gospel of Mark, when the family of the Lord Jesus, they go out to speak with him, it says a very interesting comment. Interesting in the sense that it's sad. Because it says that his mother and his brothers they went out because they thought that the Lord, our Lord Jesus was beside himself. Somehow they thought he lost his senses. There is no doubt that there is there is most likely an element of human love behind that attitude. We know how much his mother, his earthly mother, loved him. And yet, there is a failure to see in him his kingly person. So not only the leaders are rejecting the Lord Jesus, but even the crowds at large, they are pretty much on the fence. They are seeing the evidences, but where is the response? And even his earthly family fails to see, to acknowledge that he is God's king. Now, this is the background of chapter 13 of Matthew. After all those things are happening, that is when the Lord Jesus leaves the house and, and he will start speaking on those parables. So I just want to emphasize that for us to really see the picture in Matthew 13 is very, very important. That that background is really clear before. It is this rejected king that now will give us those seven parables that we read in Matthew 13. And when you look at chapter 13 as a whole, we see a prophetic outline of what the kingdom of heavens will be in this age. The king himself 
the rejected king will give us his interpretation of the kingdom of the heavens in this age. So we now let us really briefly take a look at like the, the uh, as you say the high over the, the overview of this chapter because he is being rejected somehow this chapter becomes the mystery of the kingdoms of the kingdom of the heavens our brother Kong already told us something very precious in that in that regard. It's very interesting that mis is not the mystery in the singular, but the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. In other words, there are many aspects to this mystery. Because he's being rejected. The kingdom became something that unless it's revealed, you'll never understand. And our brother Kong told us that one aspect of this mystery is that because he's been rejected, the king himself will allow some mixture in this kingdom. Think about that. The king himself is being rejected by the vast majority. There is a relatively small number of disciples that see him as the king. Then our Lord Jesus goes ahead and explains what is the kingdom of heaven going to look like during this day. I think it's very clear to see the mixture when you look at a glance at the, at the various parables in chapter 13. Because if you just set aside for a second the parable of the sword, and you read the other six parables, it's very clear to see that there is there are two groups of parables going on there. In the first three parables, we see that there is a predominance of something that is going in the direction of failure. So for instance, the parable of the tares and the wheat. You remember that the king himself is the sower in that parable. And he's sowing the, the sons of the kingdom. And yet, an enemy, he sows tears in the midst of that crop. And because of that, that plantation becomes a mixture. And in the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed, Again, a very negative element there. Yes, there is growth in that. That seed becomes a big tree. But big trees in the Bible, they have a special symbolism. They speak of this worldly corrupt power. 
You remember how in that dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had, he saw Babylon as a huge tree. And here is the king himself saying that the kingdom of heaven will be like that seed of mustard that becomes a huge tree. And even the birds of the skies, they will come and lodge in that tree. And of course, in the first parable, we know that those birds, they point directly to the enemy. Can you, can you see the mixture coexisting? And the parable of Levin. You, you have those three measures of flour of uh, what is which in scriptures, leaven consistently, in every single instance, points to something negative. Corruption either in doctrine or in practice. So it's very clear that our king, when he gives us his own interpretation of the age that is beginning, he sees that there is a mixture that is going to coexist. But then when you get to the last three parables, something changes. The kingdom of heavens is compared to that man that finds a treasure. And in the midst this points very simply. We don't want to go into the details. But you see how in the midst of all this general altered failure of the kingdom, there is something exceedingly precious. That man is he's willing to sell everything he has to buy the field to have the treasure. And then the kingdom is is compared to that pearl, exceedingly valued that that man found. And again, he sells everything to acquire that pearl. And even in the last parable, the parable of the net, you see something that it seems that there is mixture, but there is a positive. Uh, emphasis, if we can use that word. So Because yes, even though there are good fish and bad fish all in that net, at the end of the age, there will be a clear discrimination. At the end of the age, the king sovereign will send the angels and they will make distinction. The good fish is the good fish, the bad fish is the bad fish. Everybody will see. So roughly speaking, I, I hope we can see the picture of this prophetic outline of the kingdom of heaven. 
Yes, there is mixture. There is something corrupt in the mid in the midst of that kingdom. There is an outward appearance. When people look at it, they say, Well, what is that? Those are the three first parables after the parable of the soul. But then the last three parables reveal the other side. There is something exceedingly precious. There. So precious that the king himself is willing to sell everything he has to acquire Well, the parable of the sword, there is something different and unique in this parable. It's not just unique because it's the first. There is something else. I read of this verse in Mark that I feel it's very eye-opening when it comes to considering the parable of the soul. Did you notice how the king himself singles out that parable? He says to the disciples, You don't understand this parable? But if you don't understand this, how are you going to understand everything else? It almost seems that the parable of the sower holds a very unique key that opens the whole chapter. And in a sense, the more I meditated, the impression I got is this. In the parable of the sword, there is not a, the emphasis is not as much on the prophetic development of the king. But the parable of the sword concentrates on the spiritual principles that will lead in either an appearance or a reality in the kingdom. So again, I think we need to go a little... I know it's a lot of things going on here. So bear with me for a second. I'll, I'll do some repetition, hopefully for the benefit of clarity. But the first three parables, the tares and the mustard seed and that of the lamp, they depict the kingdom as essentially an outer reality, an outer appearance. Mixture. There is general failure. But the three last parables, the treasure, the pearl, and the net, you see the other side. An inner reality. Something so precious that the king is willing. 
It is my impression that the parable of the sower emphasizes what are the spiritual principles that lead to any one of the two outcomes. See, if we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, we are all in the realm of that kingdom of heaven. But let me ask you this. Is the kingdom of heaven a reality in your life? Or is the kingdom of heaven just an appearance? Just something that we can profess with our mouth, and yet it affects very little our hearts. That's the difference between the reality of the kingdom and just the appearance. Still in the realm of the kingdom, but just an appearance. We read a passage in Matthew 21 that to me somehow illustrates this principle that I'm trying to convey. You remember how our Lord Jesus one day was walking and he saw this fig tree. And the fig tree was full of leaves. But when the Lord Jesus tried to find fruit in that fig tree, he couldn't find it. And therefore, our Lord Jesus, he cursed the fig tree which withered from the top to bottom. I don't have any intentions to go over the symbolism of this, which is very important, by the way. I would just like to extract from that passage one spiritual principle that hopefully can illuminate what's going on here in chapter 13 of Matthew. What is spiritual reality? What is the Lord really after? Only fruit will satisfy His heart. You may have something huge, a wonderful, beautiful tree, full of leaves, but if there is no fruit, the heart of the Lord is not satisfied. There is a wonderful appearance there, but where is the substance? Do you see the difference when we say that in the kingdom of heavens there is appearance and there is reality? Can we see the difference? At the end of the day, it's very, very simple. The question is, is there fruit? And isn't that at the end of the day what the parable of the sower is all about? You see that in the parable of the sower, you have four types of soils. But actually, there are just two categories. Three of those soils never produce 
The real purpose was never fulfilled. But the last soil produced fruit. You see the difference between the reality of the kingdom and the appearance of the kingdom? Very, very simple. Is there fruit or not? And we as Christians, saved by the grace of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven for us, I'm not talking about for others, it's for Christians. It can be either a reality or an appearance. Okay, I, I hope nobody gets me wrong on this. Let me just clarify. It is possible for a Christian to be in the outward realm of the kingdom. He's a Christian, truly saved, a real believer, and yet be in the outward appearance of the kingdom. We shouldn't rush to say, well, if someone is in the outer appearance of the, of the kingdom, it must be just the tares, right? Those that are not really saved, but they are somehow related to Christendom. Well, on the one hand, it's clear that there are wheat and tares in the kingdom. Let me be a little more uh, precise here. There are, there are wheat and tares in the outward appearance of the kingdom. And of course, tares, by the explanation of the king himself, refers to unsaved people from the evil one. They were never saved. They never truly believed in the Lord Jesus. But somehow they are associated with this big tree of Christendom. But now, when you come to the power of the sword, the emphasis seems to be quite different. The power of the sword does not speak of the difference between wheat and tares, no. All the seed there is good seed. The difference there is between wheat and wheat. And when we study scriptures, that is abundantly clear. There is difference between Christians and Christians. Some will produce fruit. Others, despite the fact that they are true Christians, there was never fruit in their lives. Part of the crop becomes the first fruit. It absorbs all the light from the sun and matures really fast. 
The emphasis here is that the word of his kingdom is being sown. And that sowing happens on human hearts. And that is represented by the different soils. And we can say that those soils represent the different heart attitudes towards the word of the kingdom. Or to put it in slightly different words, the soil represents those different spiritual principles that are operating in our hearts that determine whether there is fruit or not. I hope I can impress at least this thought upon you. The word of the kingdom, that is the seed in our parable here in Matthew, does not speak of our initial salvation, but speaks whether we acknowledge the Lord Jesus as king or not. Or to put it very, very simple, we, when we believe in the Lord, we all know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. But to know Him as your Lord is a very different matter. You can know Him as your Redeemer. Who forgave all your sins. But to know him as your king that has all authority in your lives is a very different matter. And this is the emphasis that you find in the parable of the sword as seen here in the Gospel of Matthew. The seed is the word of the kingdom. Not necessarily the word for initial salvation. There is a little word in both chapter 12 and 13 of Matthew that to me it seems a key to open this whole matter. I want to very briefly take you back to Matthew chapter 12. To the verses we read at the beginning. So we saw there in verse 14 how for the first time the Pharisees start planning about killing the Lord Jesus. In other words, the king himself is being rejected. Now, what is his reaction when he is being rejected? In verse 15, we see that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He not only withdrew, but it says, many followed him, and he healed them all. Now let's stop just for a second. Who is this one that is here 
the people are conspiring to He's not other but the king himself. Not simply an earthly king. He's God's king himself. The son of God himself. And when he's been rejected, what does he do? He withdraws. Not in the sense that, well, these guys don't want anything with me, so I don't want anything with them. No. Even though he withdraws, do you see his spirit of grace? When people go to him, he heals them all. And immediately we have that the gospel writer makes that connection as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. In verse 18, he says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. This rejected one that is withdrawing and still being gracious is indeed the Messiah, full of the Spirit, the anointed one. But to me, the, what is really this key word in the whole passage is the first word of that prophecy. Behold. Behold is, is more than just look, it's more than just see. It's a call to special attention. Do you see what kind of king is this? He's the maker of the universe. He's been rejected. He could simply very well just get rid of them all like that. But is that his reaction? It's very interesting because as the prophecy continues, it says in verse 20, a battered reed he will not break off. Oftentimes, reed in the Bible points to humanity. We, men, you, women, human beings, we're just like reed. It's not a strong wood. No. Very weak. It breaks very easily. Undependent. And here you have a battered or smashed reed. Useless. Let's use that. What, what are you going to do if you're a carpenter, if you work with something? What can you do with a battered? 假设你是木匠的话，你一个压伤的芦苇对你有什么用处呢？The easiest thing is just get rid of it, of it, get a new one.所以最容易的就是把它解决了，找一块新的木木头。But do you see what kind of king we have?就是你看到我们的王是何等的王。He does not break off the battered reed.压伤的芦苇它不折断。And a smoldering wick, wick, he will not put out. 
That smoldering wick speaks of, you know, the wick on a, on a lamp. And the, when the wick is going out, the easiest thing to do, you know, get a new one. Just get rid of it. It's, you know, there's too much smoke, no light. The easiest solution is replace it. And yet, this king, the smoldering wick, he will not put out. Do you see the character, the nature of this king? But listen, the call is, behold this king. And the very first words of our Lord Jesus in the parable of the sower, guess which is? Behold, the sower went out to sow. This rejected king is still going out and sowing that word of his kingdom. We are like that battered reed. A smoldering wick. So useless. Our spiritual life so many times just almost getting extinguished. And yet this king is still calling us to be under his kingship. He still goes out and casts that seed of the word of the kingdom. Calling you and I to submit our lives to his kingship. Unfortunately, most people did not behold the king. Most they saw him. They saw the signs. They saw everything he did. They heard his words. But they never behold him. And that is the essential point when we come to the check to the parable of the sword. At the end of the day, in chapter twelve, there are many categories of people. You have the leaders that want to kill the Lord. You have the crowds that are wondering, is, is, is it possible that he is the son of David? In other words, deep down in their hearts, they know it must be him. And yet, where is the response? You have the family. That may be out of love, but they yet don't see that he is the king. And finally, we have that relatively small number of disciples that acknowledge that he is the king. The Lord can say that they are the ones that do the will of my Father. They are my true mother, brother, and sister. And when we come to the explanation of the king on the parable of the sower, the same issue is 
Remember when the disciples asked the Lord, why are you talking parables? The Lord gives us very, very important words that explain the whole chapter. But more specifically, they have a very unique bearing on the parable of the sword. When the Lord answers to them, and that's 13 verse 11. The reason why he's speaking in parables, the answer is, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. You see the basic difference? To you and to them. Who is the you? The disciples. Who is the them? Everybody else that is not quite acknowledging the king. And in verse 12, the Lord says these words, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from. And it's very clear who has the disciples, who doesn't have the multitude. But what exactly they do have or they do not have? See, the problem of the crowd is not that they do not have anything. No. According to the words of the Lord, they do have something. But they do not have something else. Therefore, the Lord says, and those that do not have, even what they do have will be taken away from them. On the one hand, they have all the evidences that the Lord Jesus is indeed the King. They even have, to some degree, a mental understanding that he must be the Messiah. Remember their question in chapter 12? When our Lord Jesus heals that blind man, they ask absolutely the right question. And the question has the force of almost like it has to be. What is that question? Could this be the son of David? Of course, son of David is a title in the Old Testament. That refers to the king that sits in that descendants of David. Or it's a messianic title, a title that applies to the king himself, the Messiah. And they have to some degree a mental understanding. He, he has to be. Could he be? And yet, everything stopped right there in their minds. They ne- what they do not have is a heart response to the king. 
They have the evidences. They maybe even have the mental understanding. But where is the heart response? You see that the, at the end of the day, that is what makes the difference between the appearance of the kingdom and the reality of the kingdom. We can say that the multitude, they see the Lord, and yet they do not behold Him. And that's what they do not have, the beholding of the King. That's what those disciples really have. Now, as you can tell, we are not going to be able to go through the parable of the sower today. Except maybe just the first type of soil. Because the first type of soil, just recapping, the, the type of soils will speak of those spiritual principles that determine if there is fruit or not in our life. They determine if we are in the reality or in the appearance of the kingdom. But do you realize that in a sense, the first type, in some sense, it seems to be the most foundational and the most important in some sense of all the principles? When our Lord Jesus explains that first type of soil, He says that when the seed falls and there is and they do not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their so when you do the problem there, the hard problem that is happening is there is no understanding. Now we need to be careful here. Because when we speak in understanding, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is that understanding is a mental faculty. But if we just go back to the explanation of our king himself, you see that no, that's not the case. Let's read again verse 15. And again, it's quoting the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's start from verse Actually, let's start from verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while they see, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand the same word. Again, the problem is not that they don't see anything. They are seeing something. Our Lord says, while they see, they do not see. They are seeing something. But where is the beholding? 
And therefore, because they see and do not see, the Lord says they do not understand. Now in verse 15, the Lord clarifies exactly what he means by understand. Now listen, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would hear. Why they do not understand? It is because the message wasn't clear enough. Is it because they are not as smart as smart as the disciples? The disciples understood and they did not. No, understanding here has nothing to do with the, or very little to do with the mind. So a lot to do with the heart. Our Lord says at the end, they understand with the heart and they are not understanding with the heart. And in a sense, this is the spiritual principle that we find in that first type of soil. The problem there is that there is no understanding. Because there is no understanding, the enemy comes and snatches away the word of the kingdom. And not, there is no fruit whatsoever. But the question is, why are they not understanding? Do you see the answer from our king himself? For the heart of his people has become dull. There is a lack of desire in the heart that prevents the understanding. Or to put it even more simply, there is a, a lack of of a response in the heart. And without that response, there is no fruit whatsoever. In a sense, the first soil in this parable is the most foundational of all. It's the most important in a sense of all. Because in spiritual experience, everything begins with a desire after the Lord. I hope you remember the verse we read in Song of Songs. And that wonderful book is just a description of the spiritual experience between, between that maiden that loves her, her beloved, which is the king. And how it begins at the very, very beginning of the book. There is a prayer there. And the prayer is, draw me after you. Attract me after you. Do you see the desire 
你们看到这个女子的心是怎么样吗？And what's the result of that prayer？所以这个祷告的结果是什么？As soon as there is this prayer asking for this, this for that desire to be awakened after the Lord, she says the King has introduced me in His chambers。所以你发现在这个女子她做这个祷告之后，她就发现这个王就邀请她来到他面前。Do you see that when there is a desire？ we are brought to that place of special intimacy and revelation of the kingdom. Doesn't that explain what happened to these disciples in chapter 13? Somehow, they had a heart response for the kingdom. Somehow they desired after the king. And therefore the Lord says, To you it is given the mysteries of the king. The king has introduced me into his chambers. And that, brothers and sisters, is the very first spiritual principle in this matter of the kingdom of heaven. Is the kingdom going to be a reality in our lives? Are we going to know this most wonderful king of ours as king indeed in our lives? Or are we going to stay in that outward realm of the king? Everything begins with that. Do we have a heart response to our Lord? Or is that seed just falling on that wayside and producing absolutely no effect in our hearts? Maybe we can again finish the song singing just because of the time. Just one verse of the hymn that we sang at the beginning. That somehow seems to express so wonderfully some of the thoughts that we find in, in the beginning of chapter 13. I want to read, let's, we could read sing the last stanza, which is stanza 3. Let me just read it. Thyself, O Lord, is my desire. Can we offer together as we sing this prayer to our King and say, Lord, we desire you. Open my heart that I may love. Let me be wholly lost in thee. Pour down thy fullness from above. Earnestly, and I want to underline that word. Earnestly, now I seek thee, Lord. Hide not from me thy blessed face. Open my heart to love thee, Lord. Through all my days. 
So let's sing together this stanza. And after that, I know it's late, but if, if someone feels led by the Lord, let's have two or three prayers as we close this time.